millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Bruce Curtis stood over the body of Rosemary Podgus. Blood seeped slowly onto the floral housecoat of the middle-aged woman. She wasn't moving. The rifle that had just ended her life was still in his hand. What the hell had just happened? It was just after 8 a.m. on the morning of July 5th, 1982 and Bruce had been startled awake by the blast of a gunshot. It was the second gunshot he had heard in as many days while visiting his friend, Scott Franz, in New Jersey. The day before, Scott had been shot at by his stepfather, Alfred Podgus. The man was an angry, violent brute who had terrorized Scott and his siblings for years. Bruce was visiting his American school friend for the July 4th holiday weekend, but knew they had to leave. The two teenagers had a plan. They were going to spend one more night in the Podgus home, steal the family van, and drive to Nova Scotia, where Bruce lived. At least in his family home, no one got shot at. Just one more night. But this time... They would be armed, sleeping with two rifles between them. But now, in a single moment, everything had changed. Bruce was startled awake by another gunshot blast from upstairs, where Scott had gone to shower. Had Scott's stepfather shot at him again? Maybe killing him this time? Bruce knew he had to run. He had to get out of that house before Alfred Podgus came downstairs to shoot at him. He ran towards the back door with the rifle in his hand. Then, suddenly, he collided with Rosemary Podgus, Scott's mom. She had been in the kitchen making breakfast. Now, she looked as terrified as Bruce was neither of them knowing what had just happened upstairs. But then, a second shotgun blast rang out, and Rosemary fell to the ground. The gun in Bruce's hand had gone off accidentally. Within moments, Scott appeared. It was an accident, 
Bruce muttered as Scott looked down at his mother. Now there were two dead bodies in the house. Scott had just killed his stepfather in the upstairs bedroom. The boys had to think fast. What were they going to do? They could call the police and try to explain what had just happened. Or they could try to cover up the bloody murder scene, dump the bodies, and drive across the country. Whoever said teenagers think rationally? I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a shocking crime. It began with a friendship between two teenage boys, one Canadian, the other American, on summer vacation. But what was supposed to be a carefree holiday on the New Jersey shore quickly turned into a terrifying journey into darkness. A middle-aged couple, parents of one of the boys, have been shot to death. Their bodies found dumped into a ravine. And now, the two 18-year-old boys have been arrested for their murders. But what stories will they tell? And who will be believed? Was it an accident, self-defense, or pure murder? What really happened on that fateful July morning in the house on Euclid Avenue? And who will pay the ultimate price? This is Nightmare in New Jersey, The Bruce Curtis Story, Episode 2. The suspect wanted in a double homicide last week has been A credit card. That was how the New Jersey police found Scott Franz and Bruce Curtis. A credit card belonging to Alfred Podgus had been used on July 10th to check into a Holiday Inn in Richmond, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, 2,500 kilometers southwest of Lock Arbor, New Jersey. The boys had gone missing along with Scott's parents after the July 4th long weekend. But when the bodies of Alfred and Rosemary Podgus were discovered in a park in Pennsylvania, the search for the missing teenagers had turned into an apprehension of two murder suspects. Initially concerned that the teenagers had also been harmed or kidnapped, the police investigation quickly shifted when evidence at the murder scene pointed more towards some type of domestic dispute. Someone had been killed in the upstairs bedroom, and there was no indication of a struggle. An attempt to clean up the crime scene, wiping the walls and stuffing blood-stained bedsheets into garbage bags, looked rushed, not professional. And nothing of value had been taken from the Podgus home eliminating a robbery. The only things missing were the family van and the family dog. And a witness in Pennsylvania had come forward to say that he had given directions to two young men in a burgundy van 
looking for the state park where Alfred and Rosemary's bodies had been found. The boys were arrested in Texas, and soon after, New Jersey investigators were on a plane to Dallas. They were anxious to question the teenagers about what exactly had happened five days earlier. According to other family members, there was bad blood between Scott Franz and his stepfather. And Alfred Pogus was a gun collector who wasn't afraid to use his firearms to threaten his family. But if Scott shot Alfred Pogus, why was Rosemary killed as well? All of the children loved their mother, including Scott, so it didn't make any sense. And how was Scott's Canadian friend involved in all of this? They had obviously tried to clean up the crime scene. Then they had fled and dumped the bodies. And what were they doing in Texas? At 6.30 p.m. on the evening of July 10th, New Jersey detective William Lucia arrived at the Richmond, Texas police station to question Scott Franz and Bruce Curtis. The boys were separated during their initial interrogation. Scott Franz immediately denied knowing anything about his parents' deaths, stating that he and his friend Bruce had left his home the previous holiday Monday on a trip to Atlantic City. And then they drove to Knoxville, Tennessee, and eventually ended up in Texas, where they were planning on visiting his sister. And while he continued to deny everything, he didn't seem surprised or distressed after hearing that both his parents were dead. Finally, after several hours of intense questioning, Scott Franz admitted to shooting his stepfather. But he claimed it was self-defense after his stepfather shot at him. According to Scott, he had gone upstairs to shower, and from the bathroom, he saw his stepfather reach under the bed for his gun. Scott told the police that Alfred Pogus had shot at him the day before, accusing him of taking valuables from the house. So, on the morning of July 5th, when Scott went upstairs, he was armed with a rifle. When he saw Alfred reach for his 22 caliber shotgun, he hid in the bathroom. According to Scott, Alfred got out of bed and shot at him, missing him by inches. Scott then ran towards the bedroom door and fired his gun. When he looked in the room, he saw blood splatter on the wall and realized he had just killed his stepfather. The next thing I heard was another shot, said Franz. I ran downstairs and saw my mom lying on the floor. Bruce was standing over her with the gun in his hand. Bruce Curtis, Scott's Canadian friend, had shot his mother. He said it was an accident, Scott told the police. Bruce said the gun had gone off accidentally. As Scott Franz continued his statement, he said that after his parents were dead, they didn't know what to do. 
We panicked, he said, and I told Bruce that we should get rid of the bodies. They put Alfred in a blue steam trunk and wrapped Rosemary in a sleeping bag. He told Bruce to take his mother's rings off so someone in the family could have them. For the police, that solved the mystery as to why Rosemary's rings had been found in a buffet hutch in the dining room. The boys then used a dolly to move the trunk with Alfred's body from the master bedroom upstairs to the side entrance of the house. They backed the family van up to the doorway and loaded both bodies into the van. Then they tried to clean up the house. Bruce wiped down the blood-splattered walls in the bedroom, while Scott gathered the bloody towels, pillows, and bedding. When they finally drove away from the house, they had two bodies, two guns, and the family's German Shepherd dog. With no specific plan in place, the two teenagers drove for hours. By nine o'clock that night, they pulled into Ravensburg State Park in Pennsylvania, looking for a place to dump the bodies. Eventually, they found a ravine where they backed up the van and rolled the trunk and the sleeping bag down a steep embankment. Scott told the detectives that they then drove back to Lock Arbor. But when they arrived at his house the following morning, police cars were already out front. They kept driving and eventually ended up at a Hilton hotel where they dumped the two rifles down a sewer drain. From there, they traveled to Atlantic City and eventually on to Texas. One of Scott's older sisters lived in Texas and he wanted to explain to her what had happened to their mother and stepfather. By the time Scott Franz's interrogation ended, it was 2 a.m. in the morning. Police were already on their way to retrieve the guns out of the sewer drain at the Hilton Hotel. And the district attorney had enough to charge the 18-year-old with killing his stepfather. But was it self-defense as Scott was claiming? Was Rosemary Podgis killed by accident? Police investigators weren't entirely sure that they had heard the whole truth about what really happened on the morning of July 5th at the Podgis residence in Lock Harbor, New Jersey. The following morning, Detective Lucia met with Bruce Curtis at the Richmond, Texas police station. But since Bruce had requested a lawyer, Lucia could not formally interrogate him. The seasoned American cop wasn't too sure what to make of the tall, awkward Canadian teenager. The kid was obviously nervous and confused given his current circumstances. But Lucia got the sense that there was more. That kid is weird, he declared to his colleague. Later that day, the New Jersey police contacted the RCMP in Nova Scotia and discovered that Bruce Curtis and Scott Franz were suspects in two separate poisoning incidents involving a teacher and two students at their private school. No charges had been laid 
but the New Jersey police wondered if this explained the mystery white powder and syringe that had been found in Bruce Curtis's bag at the Podgus home. So one kid was claiming self-defense, while the other was declaring an accident. But Detective Lucia wasn't sure he was buying any of it. On Thursday, July 15th, Scott Franz and his Canadian friend Bruce Curtis were jointly charged with the first-degree murders of Alfred and Rosemary Podgus. Jim and Alice Curtis arrived in New Jersey two days after their son Bruce had been charged with murder. What had started out as a graduation gift, a trip to visit his American school friend, had turned into a surreal nightmare. This had to be a big mistake. And hopefully, they would be able to get Bruce back home to Nova Scotia soon. They had already placed calls to the Canadian consulate in New York and were certain that government officials would intervene. Bruce was being held at the Monmouth County Correctional Institution in Freehold, New Jersey, a stark prison surrounded by a 14-foot electrified perimeter fence. It was a far cry from Bruce's comfortable home on the Curtis's 750-acre farm in the scenic Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia. And for an introverted, gangly Canadian kid, everything about prison was terrifying. Try to act tough, the prison psychologist told him a few days into his incarceration. But that wasn't something the bookish kid who read Tolkien and wrote poetry could readily do. And while Bruce's parents just wanted to take him home, the attorney they hired to represent Bruce informed them that that wasn't going to be happening anytime soon. Michael Shotland, a well-respected and experienced New Jersey criminal lawyer who had agreed to take on the case, advised the Curtises that he believed Bruce would be found guilty of manslaughter and would likely serve three years in prison. But while he didn't want to get their hopes up, Shoutland had not ruled out a possible acquittal. The fact that the boys had killed the Podguses was irrefutable. But Bruce claimed the gun had gone off accidentally when he ran into Rosemary Podgus, and Scott Franz had stated the same thing. It was a tragic accident in a moment of terror. According to Bruce's lawyer, the state was going to have to prove mens rea, or guilty intent. Did Bruce Curtis intend to murder his friend's mother, or was it an accident involving some element of negligence? What the boys did afterwards, fleeing the crime scene and dumping the bodies, was a problem, said the defense lawyer. But he assured the Curtises that a jury would likely understand that they were dealing with the mindset of two immature teenage boys who simply panicked. As far as the seasoned criminal attorney was concerned, Bruce Curtis 
had been at the wrong place at the wrong time, and hopefully a jury would see it the same way. The trial of Bruce Curtis began on March 14, 1983, at the Monmouth County Courthouse in Freehold, New Jersey. Eight months had passed since the brutal murders of Alfred and Rosemary Pogus. Scott Franz had already pleaded guilty to the murder of his stepfather and had agreed to testify against Bruce. Presiding over the trial was Judge John Arnon, well known as Never Go Home Arnon, the toughest sentencing judge in the county. Defense attorney Michael Shotland knew he had his work cut out for him. In his opening remarks, Shoutland stated that when Bruce Curtis arrived at the Podgus house on Euclid Avenue, he had unwittingly entered a violent, toxic household, where Scott Franz's stepfather, Alfred, often punched his wife and stepson and regularly threatened them with guns from his collection. It was an environment of guns, bullets, and threats, said the attorney. The two boys later claimed that they had been so frightened by Alfred's threats of violence that they had spent the previous night sharing a downstairs pull-out couch with two loaded rifles lying between them. On the morning of the killings, Scott Franz took one rifle with him when he went upstairs to shower. Minutes later, Alfred Podgus lay dead. Downstairs, Curtis jumped from the sofa and armed with the other rifle, ran towards the back door. And as he later reported, he collided with Rosemary Podgus coming out of the kitchen. Startled, Curtis drew back, gripping the rifle, which fired one fatal bullet into Rosemary's abdomen. It was a tragic accidental shooting, said the defense attorney. An expert testimony during the trial would support those facts. Michael Shotland also told the jury that he would argue that the two youths panicked after the killings. And instead of calling the police, they cleaned the house, put the two bodies into the family van and drove to Pennsylvania where they dumped them into a ravine. This was the act of two immature, frightened teenagers, said the lawyer. Shotland then reminded the jury that the state's key witness would be Scott Franz, who had already confessed to murder and had negotiated a plea deal in exchange for his testimony. The state was using Franz to build a murder case against his client, and in turn, Franz would receive a lighter sentence. I'm telling you right now that Scott Franz is a liar, said the defense attorney. He has never told the truth, and all he is doing is trying to save his own neck. In his opening statement, assistant prosecutor Paul Chayette took the jury through the chronology of events that took place in the Podgus home on the morning of July 5th, according to Scott Franz, 
who would be his star witness. Chiat said the facts of the case would not support the conclusion that Mrs. Podgus was killed accidentally. He noted that Curtis and Franz dumped the bodies and tried to clean the house, adding, that doesn't seem to me like the correct response to an act of self-defense and an accidental shooting. And while Franz had already pleaded guilty to murder, the prosecutor explained that it was the state's belief that Bruce Curtis was the evil mastermind of the entire murder plot. It was the Canadian who had cast a spell over Scott Franz and had engineered the thrill killings, according to the prosecutor. Over the next few days, various witnesses recounted what they had seen and heard prior to the double murder at 401 Euclid Avenue. One neighbor reported hearing Rosemary and Alfred Podgus arguing regularly, while another reported seeing the boys hiding in the bushes the night before the murder. A police witness narrated a video recording of inside the Podgus house, showing the bloody crime scene and the various weapons discovered in the home. Gory photos were circulated amongst the jury members. Then, on the third day of the trial, when a gun expert was asked by the prosecution to demonstrate the safety mechanism on the firearm that had killed Rosemary Podgus, the gun accidentally discharged in the court to the shock of the state's lawyer and the jury, proving that the gun was indeed faulty and could have discharged accidentally. This was a major win for Bruce Curtis's defense team. But their biggest challenge lay ahead, the testimony of Scott Franz. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the fourth day of the trial, seats in the New Jersey courthouse filled up quickly. It was St. Patrick's Day, and some eager spectators were even wearing green. But was the luck of the Irish going to rub off on the young man on trial for murder? A lot was riding on what his former best friend was about to say. When Scott Franz took the stand, he admitted that he had already pleaded guilty to the murder of his stepfather. He described Alfred Podgis as an angry, violent man and told the court that they had gotten into an argument the day before the murders and Alfred had fired a gun at him. Later that same night, the boys returned to the house on Euclid Avenue, but this time they were armed with two rifles in case anything happened. The following morning, Scott testified that he went upstairs to take a shower, and that was when his stepfather shot at him again. Scott said he fired back from the doorway, and when he looked back, he saw blood on the wall and realized he had killed Alfred. He said he then heard another shot downstairs, and when he ran down, he saw Bruce Curtis standing over his mom. But... This is where his testimony changed from his original sworn statement to the police. While he originally told the police that Bruce said it was an accident, on the witness stand, he told the jury that Bruce had simply said, I shot your mother. Franz denied telling the police and his family that Bruce had shot his mom accidentally. Franz then testified that he wanted to call the police, but Bruce had stopped him. According to him, it was Bruce's idea to, quote, get rid of the bodies. And in describing the crime scene cleanup, 
he said that Bruce seemed to be enjoying the process while he had been sick to his stomach. Under cross-examination, defense attorney Shotland highlighted many of the inconsistencies between Franz's original statement to the police and what he was now testifying to. You originally admitted that it was your idea to get rid of the bodies, said the defense attorney, waving Franz's original type confession in his hand. Why should we believe anything you say, asked the lawyer. It was imperative for Bruce's defense team to cast serious doubt about the credibility of Scott Franz's testimony. And the next witness was hopefully going to do just that. Dr. Halbert Fillinger, the assistant medical examiner for the city of Philadelphia, had examined the bodies of Alfred and Rosemary Podgus after they were discovered in Pennsylvania. He testified that Alfred died from a single contact gunshot wound to the head, in which the muzzle of the gun came in contact with his skin. This contradicted Scott's confession and testimony that he had shot his stepfather from the doorway of the bedroom in self-defense. In describing Rosemary Podgus's wound, Dr. Fillinger testified that the bullet had entered her body at an unusual angle and had been recovered near her left hip. This seemed to support Bruce's claim that the gun had gone off accidentally when he had collided with Mrs. Podgus. One of the last witnesses to testify was New Jersey psychiatrist Harry Brunt, who had examined Bruce Curtis for the defense. The doctor stated that he believed Bruce had accidentally shot Mrs. Podgus in a moment of panic, and everything after the shooting had been a flight response to the terrifying situation he found himself in. On the final day of the trial, prosecutor Paul Chayette chose not to review the actual death of Rosemary Podgus, but instead focused on what the boys did after the murders. According to him, their actions were cold and calculating. Cleaning up the murder scene, dumping the bodies down a ravine, and then taking off. You can talk about 18-year-olds any way you like, said the prosecutor, but this was no panic. The prosecutor reminded the jury that Scott Franz had testified that he had wanted to call the police, but it was Bruce Curtis who persuaded him not to. And whether the jury believed Scott Franz or not, the lawyer said they still needed to consider the totality of the crime and find Bruce Curtis guilty of murder. In his summation, Bruce's lawyer reminded the jury that by assisting the state, Scott Franz expected to receive a reduced sentence for the murder of his stepfather. What has the state proven? asked the defense lawyer. Nothing, he contended. They have proven that Mrs. Podgus died from a gunshot wound. But the jury had seen firsthand 
that the safety mechanism on that shotgun was indeed faulty when it went off in the courtroom. He went on to say that his client was a gullible kid who went along with what his friend wanted. They put the bodies in the van and fled the scene, which was a stupid mistake and bad judgment. But according to the defense lawyer, the state had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Bruce Curtis had intended to kill Rosemary Podius. I respectfully request that you acquit Bruce Curtis, said Shotland, and send him back to Canada. The following morning, Judge Arnon addressed the jury. Commenting on the state's key witness, Scott Franz, the judge advised the jury that his testimony should be given careful consideration. Since he had special interest in the outcome of the case and would receive a reduced sentence based on his cooperation with the prosecution. But, added the judge, if you believe Scott Franz to be credible, you have the right to convict this defendant on his testimony alone. The judge went on to say that the jury also had the right to consider the lesser offense of manslaughter. He cited two alternatives, aggravated or reckless manslaughter, both of which required that the defendant carelessly caused the death of Rosemary Podgus. After the jurors were dismissed, the defense attorney objected to the judge's address, saying he had not provided the jury with a third alternative, that of an accidental shooting in which the jury could acquit Bruce Curtis. The judge overruled the defense attorney's objection and stated that he had not advised the jury of the alternative ruling of an accidental shooting because they had not requested it. The trial had lasted for nine days. Twelve hours later, the jury announced that they had reached a verdict. As to the charge of murder in the first degree of Rosemary Podgus, not guilty, announced the foreman. As to the charge of aggravated manslaughter, guilty, said the foreman. On Friday, April 15th, 1983, 19-year-old Scott Franz appeared before Judge Arnon. State Prosecutor Paul Shiat addressed the court to suggest that in light of the defendant's cooperation with the state, he was requesting Franz be eligible for parole in 10 years. It is just my opinion, he added, but I believe Bruce Curtis was the worst of the two individuals involved in this crime. Judge Arnon sentenced Scott Franz to 20 years in prison, the minimum for murder. He would be eligible for parole in 10 years. One week later, Bruce Curtis appeared before Judge Arnon. In sentencing, Judge Never Go Home Arnon showed no compassion for the Canadian teenager. 
he sentenced Bruce Curtis to the maximum penalty for manslaughter, 20 years in prison without the possibility of parole for 10 years. Scott Franz had received the minimum sentence for murder, while Bruce Curtis received the maximum for manslaughter. Defense attorney Shotland launched an immediate appeal against the verdict and the sentence, stating the court case had been, quote, a legal lynching, and that Bruce had not received a fair trial. The only witness against him had been his fellow accused, and without Scott Franz, the state had no case against Bruce Curtis. And Scott Franz had changed his story and admitted lying a number of times. And according to the defense, the judge committed serious procedural errors and had failed to give the jury one of the four options available to them in determining Bruce's guilt. They could have reached a verdict based on accidental homicide as a result of negligence. Choosing that option may have resulted in acquittal. While the appeals process moved slowly through the New Jersey court system, Bruce's parents continued their fight, claiming that Bruce was a victim of a perverted justice system. They contacted anyone and everyone they thought could help. Local politicians, members of parliament, and external affairs minister Joe Clark. But Canada and any of its representatives were reluctant to get involved in a foreign criminal case. To the state of New Jersey, a young Canadian had been justly convicted in the killing of a classmate's mother, whose body was then dumped along with her slain husband. But to many people in Canada, Bruce Curtis was a victim, and he deserved a reduced sentence or even clemency for what his supporters believed was an accidental shooting. Hundreds of Canadians wrote to New Jersey Governor Thomas Keene, asking him to intervene. Bruce's family and their supporters organized candlelight vigils from Halifax to Vancouver, and those attending wore Free Bruce Curtis t-shirts. Bruce received hundreds of letters of support from Canadians and some even sent small gifts to cheer him up. But his family's efforts to free him were small comfort as Bruce remained incarcerated 850 kilometers away from his home in Nova Scotia at the Bordentown Youth Correctional Institution in New Jersey. Now, instead of attending university, he was inmate number 93 852, and spent his days writing poetry and working in the prison's education center filing data on computers. When he wasn't working, Bruce spent most of his time alone in his cell, hoping to avoid conflict with other inmates. By 1985, Bruce's legal team had lost two appeals and a bid for a new trial. Jim and Alice Curtis had spent more than $150,000 on lawyers' fees alone, all of their retirement savings. But they refused to give up hope. 
Finally, by the end of 1985, a well-respected Toronto lawyer and international law expert took an interest in the case. Gerald Morris, a University of Toronto law professor, reviewed the case and was convinced that Bruce Curtis had received an unjust and severe sentence. He asked Ottawa to use diplomatic channels to send a clemency plea to New Jersey Governor Thomas Keene. But the New Jersey Governor, a rumored candidate for the U.S. Vice Presidency, refused a plea for clemency. The only option left for the Canadian family was to try to get Bruce transferred to a Canadian prison. A 1978 treaty between the United States and Canada, which provided for the transfer of prisoners to their native country, would allow New Jersey to release Bruce to serve the remainder of his sentence in Canada. But the Monmouth County prosecutor was opposing the transfer. We will contest any transfer of this defendant to Canada, said Monmouth County Prosecutor Paul Shiat. Every court that has ever considered this matter has determined that Bruce Curtis was fairly convicted in a New Jersey court, he told the press. New Jersey officials also wanted a guarantee from the Canadian government that they would not pardon Bruce or give him parole before 10 years. That would be infringing on the sovereignty of Canada, said his Canadian legal representative. They want him governed by New Jersey jurisdiction in Canada. That is clearly unacceptable, added the lawyer. But Alice Curtis was not prepared to give up on her son. Every day, the 61-year-old mother paced back and forth in front of the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, demanding the release of her son so he could serve the remainder of his sentence in Canada. Her year-long protest garnered significant media attention in Canada and south of the border. Finally, the New Jersey governor relented, and on May 1, 1988, 24-year-old Bruce Curtis stepped off a plane in Toronto. He was finally back in Canada after six long years. His parents and family were there to greet him. But the reunion was short-lived as Bruce was immediately shipped to Millhaven Penitentiary in Kingston, Ontario. But within days of his arrival, he was transferred again to Spring Hill Institute, a medium-security prison in Nova Scotia, close to his parents, who had fought tirelessly to get him home. One year later, Bruce Curtis was granted day parole and was fully paroled in 1990. The former star student enrolled at Queen's University in Kingston to study biology and went on to complete a PhD. Today, Bruce Curtis works in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. As for Bruce's one-time friend, Scott Franz, 
the boy who had lied about his violent home life to his friends at the prestigious Canadian private school. He spent 13 years in prison before being paroled in 1996. He died one year later in 1997 at the age of 33. In 1991, a made-for-TV movie called Journey Into Darkness retold the story of two 18-year-old friends whose July 4th holiday weekend in New Jersey turned into a nightmare that changed two families forever. In 1996, Canadian author David Hayes published No Easy Answers, The Trial and Conviction of Bruce Curtis. In the well-researched and detailed book, the author admits that there are only two people who will ever really know what happened in the house on Euclid Avenue on the morning of July 5th, 1982. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.